So to start off, I'd like you to just think for a moment about the fact that every human being has an urgent need. Every human being has, has an urgent need to be saved from the guilt of sin so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God so that now and forever we can have the heart-filling joy of knowing God and worshiping God and loving God and trusting God. That's the need that every single human being has to be saved from our sins. So the big question is, how can we be saved? And one common answer that lots of religions give is that we need to be saved by our own works. That is, we need to obey so much that we make up for the wrong that we've done. But that is hopeless. You can never do that. You can't make up for sin by obeying enough. So how can we be saved? And there's only one way. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by what we do, not by trying to obey enough, by, by trusting what he has done in dying for us on the cross. Here's how Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There it is. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So we're saved by faith, trusting Jesus, not by our works, by our obeying, by our doing. But now this raises a question. Are works important? Is our obedience important? Is it important, church, that we pray and study the scriptures? Is it important that we walk in sexual purity and care for the poor? Is it important that we encourage our brothers and sisters and that we share the good news of Jesus with the lost? Now, some Christians can easily think, based on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that works have no place, that obedience has no connection to salvation, whatever. But in today's passage, we're going to see that that is not what Jesus teaches. So let's turn. Luke 10, 25 through 37, we're going to see what connection obedience does have with salvation. Luke 10, 25 to 37. So in this passage, there's a, a lawyer, which meant this person was an expert in Old Testament law. And this lawyer wants to test Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures. And so he asks Jesus, what shall I do, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? to be saved, to be forgiven. What shall we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer might surprise you. Let's look, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So, Jesus responds to the man's question by asking him, well, what does the law say about how someone inherits eternal life? And the lawyer answers in verse 27 by quoting two Old Testament scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. So verse 27, 
And he, the lawyer, answered, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live eternally. Do this and you will inherit eternal life. So here Jesus says that to inherit eternal life, we must love God and love our neighbor. Now, before we ask how that fits with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, let's, let's unpack what it means to love God and what it means to love our neighbor. Let's be clear on those. So what does it mean to love God? The word love used here is the Greek word agape, which many of you probably have heard about. So what does the Greek word agape mean? Well, one way to find out what a word means is to look at how it's used in other contexts. And when we look at other contexts in the New Testament, we see that the, the word agape means to desire and delight in something. To desire something, to delight in something. An example, take a look at Luke 11, verse 43, where this word agape is used. Luke 11, 43. Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love, there's the word agape, you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So the Pharisees loved the best seat in the synagogues. If, if you were given the best seat, everybody would be honoring you like, whoa, you're the, you're the man. You know, that's how it all been. So they, they loved that best seat in the synagogue. They loved those respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Hello, pious reverend, whatever you know you are. They loved that best seat and those respectful, honoring greetings in the marketplaces. And so think about, for them to love those, what that meant was that they desired those, right? And they delighted in having those. And that's the word agape. So agape means to desire and delight in something. So think about how you desire and delight in ice cream. Or how you desire and delight in maybe going to the beach or in a good book. Loving God means desiring and delighting in God. That's what's being talked about here. But now notice also, we're to love God with what? All our hearts, soul, strength, and mind. Now, we might think that each of those words refers to like a different part of our personality, but most scholars say, no, you really, they really overlap. All of them are basically ways of saying all of who you are. Slightly different nuances maybe in some ways, but essentially, Four times in, in this verse, we are hearing that we need to love God with all of our heart, all of who we are, all of our soul, all of who we are, all of our understand, uh, strength, all of who we are, and all of our mind, all of who we are. So what this verse is saying is that we are to love God with all of who we are. In other words, we are to desire God with all of who we are and delight in God with all of who we are. We're to be consumed captured with love for God. Now think about how much you love different things, okay? Maybe football or cricket has like a part of your love. You're a real cricket, cricket guy. Maybe shopping or going to 
the spa has part of your love, or maybe sunsets or music has part of your love, but, but Luke 10 says that God should not just have part of our love. Love for God should capture all of our love, right? All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our minds. Desire for God and delight in God should consume us completely. Now, why? Well, just like what Ben prayed earlier, it's because God's love and tenderness and power and authority and majesty and glory make him the infinitely greatest and most amazing being in the universe. That's why. So God just calls everything forth from us in terms of desire for him and delight in him. So we wake up in the morning. Thank you, God for giving me life and giving me this day. We, we open up our Bibles, longing to meet him in, in, the, in the truths of God's word. We pray and worship God and pour out our souls before him. We wake up our children. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. We head to work, longing to glorify God in my meetings and the different work that I'm involved in. Face a problem. Stop and ask God for wisdom. He has all wisdom. Face a temptation. Lord, strengthen me. You have some success in what you're doing at work. Praise God, you're so good to me. You, you're talking with some people, encouraging those who are believers, seeking to share the gospel with those who are not. And you put your head down on the pillow at the end of the day. Lord, thank you for the day you've given to me. So we are to be captured, consumed with desire for God, delight in God, love for God. That's what it means to love God. Now, what does it mean to love our neighbor? Read verse 27 again. And Jesus answered, I'm sorry, the lawyer answered, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5 and then Leviticus 19, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So we're to love our neighbor as we are loving ourselves. What does it mean to love yourself? Well, some people think that loving yourself means having a, a positive self-image. But, but that can't be what this verse means because not everybody has a positive self-image, right? But this verse here is assuming that we're all to love our neighbor as we already are loving ourselves. We already do love ourselves. So what does it mean to love ourselves if it's something that every single one of us in this room already has? Loving ourselves means that we seek our own well-being. Every single one of us, we all seek our own well-being passionately, right? With, with full commitments. I mean, like if I get hungry, I grab a banana. If I get thirsty, go get a glass of water. If I'm getting hot, Turn on or turn up the air conditioner or turn it down, whatever it is. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. So we all love ourselves in the sense that we are passionately committed to meeting our own needs. And so what this verse is saying is that we should be as passionately committed to meeting the needs of others as we are about meeting our own needs. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Does that make sense? We're to be as passionately committed to loving others' needs as we are to meeting our own needs. So imagine, for example, that you need a job. 
think about how passionately you would want a job. And that's how passionately you should want your neighbor to get a job. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. Imagine that you're discouraged. Think about how you would long to be encouraged, right? That's how passionately you should long for your neighbor to be encouraged if they're discouraged. Or think of how much you longed to be forgiven for your sins through Jesus. That's how much we should long for everybody around us to be forgiven for their sins through Jesus because that's their greatest need after all, right? So are you feeling what a high call this is? To be as passionately committed, I mean, just look at the people around you, to be as passionately committed for their needs as I already am for my own needs. That's commitment. That's passionate. That's love. Now, with all that in mind, loving God, loving our neighbor, let's read verses 25 through 28 again. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus is saying that if we love God and if we love our neighbor, we will inherit eternal life. Now, one small explanation here. Jesus can't mean that to gain eternal life we must have perfect love for God or love for neighbor. And one reason that's obvious is because remember in the Lord's Prayer what he wants all of us to be praying? This is a model of different ways we should be, different requests we should be bringing before God. Look at Matthew 6, 12. In the Lord's Prayer, he wants us to be praying regularly and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So Jesus is not expecting us to live sinlessly, to never need forgiveness ever again. He wants us regularly. He's expecting that regularly we will be praying, God, forgive me. So then, if it's not perfect love for God and love for others, how, how can we describe it? See if this helps. I would describe it as growing love for God and love for others. Growing with ups and downs, okay? Right? Isn't that kind of how it is? But never just like blah, stagnant or, ne or never <laughs> crashing and burning, but growing, ups and downs, times where it's stronger, times where it's weaker, and then the Holy Spirit comes and convicts, Lord, forgive me, strengthen my love for this person, or strengthen my love for you, and then we're back up. So it's, it's not perfect love for God, it's not sinless love for God or love for others, but it's growing love for God and love for others. So Jesus is saying that to inherit eternal life, we must have growing love for God and love for others. And then Jesus, well, the lawyer answers, asks another question, and Jesus tells a parable to show what it means to love your neighbor. He goes into more detail on that. So let's ask, what is the point of this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan? Start in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So think about what, how this lawyer is viewing people. He's saying, okay, I've got to love my neighbor as myself. Well, 
So all these people. So who's my neighbor? Because the lawyer's kind of thinking that there's some people that he will count as his neighbor and he'll love them, but there's others that he won't count as his neighbor and he won't love them, right? Do any of us see people that way? It's easy to do. We all struggle with this. I mean, do you think that there are some people here in Abu Dhabi who you'll love them because, sure, I'll count them as my neighbor, but other people's like, I'm not going to love them. I'm not going to count them as my neighbor. I mean, do you think of people from other races, maybe as not being your neighbor, or people from other religions as not being your neighbor, or people from other social classes not being your neighbor? Do you see how easy it is to fall into that? So this lawyer is asking, okay, well, so tell me who is and who isn't my neighbor? And look at what Jesus does in answering. He tells this parable to answer that question. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, Jewish priest, was going down that road, and when he saw him, this man half dead on the side of the road, he passed by on the other side of the road. So likewise, a Levite, who also was a Jewish temple official, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So here's what's going on. There's a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which probably means this man was Jewish, since he was coming from Jewish Jerusalem. Some robbers beat him up, stole his money, left him half dead. So picture him eyes swollen shut, head's been kicked, I mean, broken ribs, I mean, just bruised, bloodied, groaning by the side of the road, half dead, Jesus says. And a priest comes, maybe hears him groaning, passes by the other side of the road. A Levite comes, hears him moaning, he passes by the other side of the road. But then a Samaritan came. This is amazing that Jesus would tell the story with a Samaritan being the hero. Because Samaritans and Jews typically hated each other. There was great racial hostility between them. But not in this Samaritan's heart. Mm -mm. When this Samaritan saw this half-dead Jewish man on the side of the road, he didn't feel racial animosity or hostility. He felt compassion love, care. And what did he do? Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which would ease, soothe the pain and disinfect. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him all that day. And the next day, he took out two denarii, that's like two days' wages of money, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now again, don't miss how 
stunning this parable would have been to this lawyer. A Samaritan would never consider a Jew his neighbor. A Samaritan would never stop to care for a Jew. Might have kicked him on the way. But this Samaritan did. This Samaritan loved this Jewish half-dead man as he loved himself. He was as passionate about caring for his needs as he was for his own. So there's the parable. And then look at how Jesus concludes in verse 27, verse 36. Yeah, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So lawyer, which one of these men was a neighbor? Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the lawyer had asked, so who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And in Jesus' story, the Samaritan does something shocking. He counts a Jew as his neighbor. And so what Jesus is clearly saying through this parable is, everyone is your neighbor. Every, even those, especially those, you don't think are your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. You should be as passionate about your neighbor's beings, and that's about everyone's needs, passionate about everyone's needs as you already are about your own. And then Jesus says to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Okay, so this passage, this whole passage, the loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, and the parable of the Good Samaritan to, to unpack that, raises a crucial question that we all need to be clear on. And that is, how important is loving God and loving our neighbor? How important? So remember, Jesus is answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus agrees with the lawyer that to inherit eternal life, he must love God and love his neighbor. So how important is loving God and loving our neighbor? If we take Jesus' words at face value, just take them, as, which is what we ought to do, he's saying without loving God and loving your neighbor, you will not inherit eternal life. So just let that rest on us. And now Jesus doesn't just teach that here. He teaches that in many different places. Let me give you another example. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Look at what Jesus says. Sermon on the Mount. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now again, Jesus is not talking about perfection here. He's not talking about sinlessness. None of his followers are sinless. None of those who inherit eternal life are sinless. But he's saying that to enter heaven, we must have growing obedience to the will of the Father. So just let this rest on you. I, I, some of us, I'm sure, some of you need, need a bit of a wake-up call at this point. I mean, the, the pandemic and the virus, it can just kind of become an excuse. We're just kind of coasting spiritually. Blah, just everything's just like blah, right? Blah, when's it going to change? Or maybe that, right? So let this be a wake-up call to you. If you're getting sleepy spiritually, you must 
have growing love for God and growing love for your neighbor. Jesus wants these words to wake us up and to shake us up. But now, why must we have growing love for God and love for our neighbor? Very important that we get the right answer. It's not because loving God and loving your neighbor will make up for your sin so you can go to heaven. That is not why you need loving God and loving your neighbor. You can never love God enough, obey God enough, love your neighbor enough to make up for your sin. The only one who can make up for your sin is who? Jesus. By paying for our sins on the cross, he has made up for our sin. He has paid for the sins of all who trust him. So the reason that loving God and loving neighbor are essential is not because we must have those to make up for our sin. Just get that and take that out of your thinking entirely. Just wipe the slate clean from that. That is not the reason. So how do, how do we receive the forgiveness that Jesus purchased then? If it's only Jesus who makes up for our sin, how do we get what he's done on the cross? And, and the answer is faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? By grace you're saved through faith. Remember the sinful woman we read about back in Luke chapter 7 who heard that Jesus was having lunch uh, at Simon the Pharisee's house and she, she was so filled with joy at her forgiveness of sins that she was weeping, weeping with joy and she comes up and stands behind Jesus just, just weeping with a heart overflowing with joy for her forgiveness. So how did she get forgiveness? It wasn't by loving God and loving her neighbor. Jesus tells how she got it in verse 50. Luke chapter 7, verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So what saved her was her faith in Jesus, not her love for God and her love for her neighbor. Are we clear on that? Okay, so what saved her was her faith, not love for God, not love for her neighbor. The moment she put her trust in Jesus... She was forgiven. That moment, all her sins, past sins, forgiven. Present sins, forgiven. Future sins, forgiven. The moment she trusted Jesus, all of her sins were forgiven, which is why she was weeping with joy at her forgiveness. So just like Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace we are saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. Okay, so if that's not why we need love for God and love for our neighbor, if it's not because we need to love God and love our neighbor to make up for our sins, why do we need love for God and love for our neighbor? It's because the only way we're saved is by faith, and genuine faith always produces love for God and love for your neighbor. So if there's no love for God and love for neighbor, there's no genuine faith. Let me say that again. The reason it's essential is because we are only saved by faith, but genuine, authentic faith will always change our hearts so we have growing love for God and growing love for our neighbor. That's why we must have love for God 
and love for our neighbor to inherit eternal life. Because if we don't have those, we're not trusting Jesus. And if we're not trusting Jesus, we won't have eternal life. Is that clear? So it's not because our loving God, loving neighbor makes up for our sin. Only Jesus pays for our sin. It's because we're saved by trusting Jesus and genuine trust in Jesus will always transform our hearts so that we have growing love for God and growing love for our neighbor. Now here's how this works. I want to try to explain how does faith in Jesus produce growing love for God and growing love for your neighbor. First of all, think about it like this. The problem we all have is because of our sinful natures, none of us love God. Paul says we are hostile toward God. We turn our backs on God. I'd rather make up my own mind how I'm going to live, not interested in you, thanks for creating me, bye. That's kind of our approach to God. But now, not only does that make us guilty before God, it also leaves us empty because God is the all-satisfying joy we were created to be filled up with, and there is no other joy in the universe that can come close to filling us. Only God can fill us, which means if we turn our backs on God, we are left empty. And empty hearts, if your heart's empty, what are you totally preoccupied with doing? Filling up your own heart, right? You're not thinking about loving other people. You've got an empty heart, and that hurts. And you're trying to fill it up with this and with this and with this. I mean, you might have some relationships because you're hoping that somehow they're going to end up filling your heart too, right? So it's all about you filling up your heart, which means you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. So when we turn our backs on God, we're not filled with God. We don't love God, and we don't love our neighbor. That's our problem. But all that changes when we turn and put our trust in Jesus Christ. That all changes the moment we trust Jesus. When we turn to Jesus and trust him to forgive us and to satisfy us with himself and then to start to change us, the moment we do that, he does. He instantly forgives all of our sins and he pours his love and presence into our hearts so much that we are overflowing with peace and comfort and joy and his presence. For the first time, we are filled with joy. This is the joy we've been longing for all our lives. It's in knowing God through Jesus. You put your trust in him, he forgives you, and he fills you. It's beautiful. And so because of that, then, you start loving God because you're beholding God in Jesus. You are such a glorious, beautiful, loving Father. I love you, God. And you start spending time in the Word. You're spending time in prayer. You're worshiping Him. And your love for God is growing. And you see how that came from faith in Jesus produced growing love for God. It is impossible to have genuine faith in Jesus and not have growing love for God. There's a cause-effect relationship between those two. Do you see that? Now, how about loving our neighbor? Well, when your heart is filled with God's peace and his comfort, when his promises are overcoming your worry, when his goodness and presence is giving you hope in the midst of discouragement, when your heart is being filled with God, then that will overflow, and that overflow is love for your neighbor. You will care for your neighbor. You will love your neighbor and you will love everyone because everyone is your neighbor. You'll love them 
Russian people you love and Brazilian people you love and Vietnamese people you love and American people you love all the different nationalities you will love all the different nationalities you'll love CEOs you'll love laborers you'll love security guards you'll love bankers you will love Hindus you will love Sikhs you will love Muslims you will love atheists you will love you will love you will love because there's this downpour of joy and peace and hope filling your heart from God through Jesus and that will overflow in your heart in love for everyone else who's your neighbor you will love God with all your heart soul mind and strength and you will love your neighbor as as yourself now quiz time here. Will you love God perfectly? No. Okay. Growingly. All right. Will you love your neighbor perfectly? Just a few timid no's. Okay. The answer is no. But you will love your neighbor growingly. When you take your joy out of God, which we do sometimes, and to start to look for joy some other places, we do. That's what sin is. The Holy Spirit will convict us. And when we do take our joy out of God and put it somewhere else, our love for God will start to, right? And then we'll become emptier and emptier and emptier. So our love for others, right? That's how it goes. And the Holy Spirit will convict us. Oh, what am I doing? That's not going to satisfy me. That's not going to fill me. I'm back. Forgive me. Fill me. And he will. He will. He'll fill you once again. He'll change your heart. He'll satisfy you as you seek his face in the word and in prayer and in worship. He'll give you times where he just pours his love into your heart and then your love for God will grow and your love for neighbor will grow. So growing love for God, growing love for neighbor is always produced by genuine faith in Jesus. And that's why love for God, love for neighbor is essential for you to have to inherit eternal life because that shows that your faith is genuine and it's faith in Jesus that gives you eternal life. Now, let me give you three takeaways from this. First of all, let me just come back to this point again. Understand, obedience, loving God, loving your neighbor, cannot earn you salvation. No one should leave here saying, okay, I've got to really work hard on loving God and loving my neighbor because I've got to make up for my sins so I can go into heaven. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Are we clear? So important. Obedience cannot earn salvation. Only Jesus earns salvation. And you receive what he's earned by faith alone in Christ alone. Second, don't let your love for God, your love for neighbor, weaken or shrink. Understand, you must have growing love for God to inherit eternal life. You must have growing love for neighbor to inherit eternal life. Not perfect, but growing because faith always produces those. And genuine faith means that you will have growing love for God and growing love for your neighbor. It, listen, if you have no love for God, if you have no love for neighbor, you have no reason to think you have genuine faith in Jesus. And that might sound harsh, but that is, that is truth, and you need to hear it. It would be disastrous if you left here thinking, even though I have no love for God and no love for my neighbor, I still trust Jesus. You don't. Search your heart. Again, we're not talking about perfect. We're talking about growing here. 
So don't let your love weaken and shrink. How is your love for God? Is it lukewarm? Is it complacent? Is it passive? Or is it white hot? Is it passionate? Are you desiring God and delighting in God and seeking God? Stir that back up from faith. And how's your love for your neighbor? How's your love for your lost friends who don't know Jesus yet? How's your love for your brothers and sisters? Let me just, quick application. Home group, join a home group. That'll give you a great way to encourage and love other brothers and sisters. But we, we, all, we all hate Zoom, Zoom on, for home groups, right? Using Zoom for home groups is, is really tough. But let me encourage you. So what? It's a way that you can encourage your brothers and sisters. It's a way that you can love them. God can overcome the, the Zoom weariness that we all can feel. So ask God, help me. Help me to be an encouragement over this Zoom call. Help home group tonight with all the, the difficulties of Zoom. Help that to go really well. Pour out your spirit. Overcome the, the downsides of Zoom. Do a mighty work and help me to be an encouragement to others. God will work. So don't let that hold you back. So don't let your love for God or your love for your neighbor weaken and shrink. Okay, so then what do you do? It's like, okay, my love for God, maybe it's weak, maybe it's shrinking. My love for neighbor, what do you do? You turn back to Jesus and you trust him. This all flows from faith in Jesus. So you go back to the source. You go back to the cause. You go back to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm back. I'm trusting you to forgive me. I'm trusting you to satisfy me with your presence. I'm trusting you to change me. You're opening up the word. You're crying out to him in prayer. Oh God, pour out your spirit upon me. Fill me afresh. Show me who you are. He will always answer that prayer. And then as he does that, your love for God will grow and your love for neighbors will grow and it'll be good. And you will be fully assured, I have eternal life. Not because of how much I've obeyed, but because my obedience shows that my faith is genuine. And faith in Jesus means Jesus has paid for all my sins and I'm going to be welcomed to heaven. So, understand that obedience cannot earn salvation. Don't let your love weaken and shrink and grow in love by trusting Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those, anyone here who's never trusted Jesus, that they would see through this how glorious a Savior you are and that they would turn from everything else and trust you to forgive them, to satisfy them, and to change them. And Lord, I pray for those here whose love for you, love for others, has been weak, shrinking. And I pray, Lord, that you would convict them of that right now, help them to wake up to the danger that they are in, and help them to turn their hearts back to trusting Jesus. And then, do what you always do. Pour your love into their hearts. Stir their love for God afresh and their love for others. And Lord, I pray that you would cause Grace Church, that we would be just on fire with love for God, love for our neighbor, so that everywhere we go, people would see that we're different, would be drawn to look to you, drawn to ask us about who you are, and would come to faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.